Well, hello there, my friend Jonathan Doyle with you once again. Welcome to the Catholic Teacher Daily Podcast. Wherever you are around the world, you are in the right place. If you care about your Catholic faith, if you care about your incredibly important vocation with young people, then you have arrived in the place where we focus on encouraging, inspiring, forming, educating people just like you who are on the front lines in what John Paul II called a lively battle for the dignity of the human person. You ever heard that before? He said we are in the front lines of a lively battle for the dignity of the human person. It's interesting, lively doesn't kind of mean fun, happy, joyful. Lively means kinetic. (laughs) Lively means it's happening, it's unfolding. There is a genuine battle for the hearts and souls and eternal destiny of every young person in your classroom. Do you know that? Do you know that every young person sitting in front of you each day has a mortal enemy, the devil, who um, I do speak about because uh, he is real. He's a sentient being. He's an angelic being. And uh, scripture makes it incredibly clear, as does the magisterium, the deposit of faith, and even recently Pope Francis, talking explicitly about evil, about Satan, about demonic evil. And as I've been teaching for many years, always remember that Satan cannot create, he can only mutate. He can only take the good things of God and twist them into forms that are unrecognizable to a person of faith and then use them against the saints. And also remember that. I always teach this, that there is no final victory for the devil. There is no final uh, victory. The book of Revelation makes it incredibly clear what awaits um, our enemy. But it is important to realize that he only has one remaining tactic, and that is to separate as many people as possible from eternal relationship with the Father. That is the only game being played by evil. It is... um, Evil knows its eternal destiny, but it, in the meantime, is seeking to do as much damage as possible. So that plays out in real time in Catholic schools. That is not the purpose of this episode, and neither am I saying that we want to look behind every rock for demonic evil, but we have to understand that if it's okay for someone like John Paul II to say explicitly that we are involved in a battle, then... I think it's okay for me to say it too. So remember that what you're doing has an incredibly important supernatural element. Today we are talking about the physical environment of a Catholic school. This is a part of our journey. If you're just joining us, we're doing a journey through the five essential marks of Catholic schools. And this is from a document by Archbishop J. Michael Miller. And I've been working through this. So if you're interested, you you can go back through some of the previous episodes as we go through these five marks, we're in mark number three, which surreptitiously has a little subsection of about four parts. And we're talking about community and communion. We're talking about the community of a Catholic school. And today's focus in Bishop Miller's document is the physical environment. I love talking about this. It's, I remember when I was studying at the Pontifical Institute, we were doing a symposium on beauty. And I've had a lot of formation, I guess, in the classical understanding of the transcendentals, truth, beauty, and goodness. And this symposium brought home for me ever more deeply the significance of beauty in human culture in general, definitely in the life of the believer. We had a a lecturer step in who is now an archbishop, and back then they weren't, but they were, this was a, uh, I'll just come out and tell you it is, it was Archbishop Uh, Fisher, who's now the Archbishop of Sydney, and he had a great focus upon the art of Fra Angelico. 
and Friar Angelico, you may be aware, did probably the best-known painting of the Annunciation. And it was a beautiful talk. I mean, actually, you know, years later, I actually bought a beautiful print of the of that Friar Angelico masterpiece and had it framed, and it, it sits in our dining room. And, and that time at the Institute brought home for me that environments affect people. And I remember in that symposium, another one of the lecturers talked about a famous book that came out, I think, in the 1960s called The Concrete Jungle. I don't know if you've heard that term. I brought it up the other day with some people who'd never heard of it. But this book, The Concrete Jungle, was quite a groundbreaking book because what it talked about was the way in which physical environments in inner city United States were affecting things like crime. And they taught us that if you place people in barren, ugly environments, what you tend to get is barren, ugly behaviors. It's almost as if we take on the you know, the marks of our environment, they affect us physically as they should, because we are created to perceive beauty and to respond to beauty. I mean, how do you feel when you see a stunning sunset? Uh, I said, I was, you said yesterday, I'm going spearfishing this afternoon. We're heading down the coast with my son and one of my daughters. And, uh, you know, it's just amazing to be in that place. What do you feel when you're by the ocean, right? What do you tend to feel when you're seeing a stunning sunset? You feel this kind of calm, this peace, sometimes this joy, this appreciation. The physical environment affects us. And of course, if you place people in difficult environments, uh, ugly environments, they tend to take on despair and despondency and often even rage and aggression. You know, one of the things I've studied, I guess, over many years is the complete, uh, I don't know how to phrase this, the complete, abject, miserable, satanic failure that communism really has been. At its, and in, during its brief time on the world stage. And one of the things, I remember reading a book many years ago about uh, Bauhaus architecture, which was kind of the architecture that went on to inform Soviet brutalism. Um, brutalism, many of you would know, is, is a form of architectural interpretation. And, you know, what it led to in, in the former Soviet Union was these vast estates of government-built grey boxes that people lived in. And you sort of track the impact of socialism and communism on people in terms of, you know, things, even things like mortality, like alcohol abuse. I mean, there's massive, massive issues with alcohol abuse in, in the former Soviet Union. And, and basically, if you put people in ugly boxes and give them no reason to believe that their labor or their efforts or their creativity are going to be rewarded, they tend to take on behaviors of nihilism and despair. So what has all this got to do with Catholic education? Well, today's message is about the physical environment of a Catholic school. And I'm looking here at Bishop Miller's uh, comments, and I guess the first thing he draws to our attention is this family nature of a Catholic school. And he says here, a school's physical environment is also an integral element that embodies the genuine community values of the Catholic tradition, since the school is rightly considered an extension of the home. Isn't that amazing? An extension of the home. With, with not being critical, I don't think in government public education you would say that very easily. I don't think many public educators would say we see this place as an extension of the home. I think at the extreme ends you might in terms of indoctrination and some people in, I guess, secular education who believe that their job is to supersede the rights of parents. Whereas in a Catholic school, our job is to, you know, we, with this principle of subsidiarity where we subsidize the work of parents, we create an extension of the home. 
And again, I've said this quite recently in a few episodes that the Marists, I educated me and I've had a lot to do with the Marist brothers. Definitely the founder, Marcel and Champagne, really got this home mentality, this family mentality. Uh, that was just crucial to their founding. Uh, Bishop Miller says here, it ought to have some of the amenities which can create a pleasant and family atmosphere. This includes an adequate physical plant and adequate equipment. It's especially important that this school home be immediately recognizable as Catholic. And here's a quote from the church documents. He says, from the first moment that a student sets foot in a Catholic school, he or she ought to have the impression of entering a new environment. It's important phraseology there, a new environment, one illumined by the light of faith and having its own unique characteristics. So kids should come into our schools sensing that they are in a place different to liquid secular modernity, right? You know, you think of the kind of just the, the, the impact of like media and marketing and news media on young people, just this constant barrage of like intensity and distraction. Coming into a Catholic school should be coming into a place of sort of peace and calm and a, a sense that this place is different. Now, the document here from Bishop Miller goes on to actually talk about something that's so important, the incarnation. Just listen to this little phrase, this little paragraph here. He says, the incarnation, which emphasizes the bodily coming of God's son into the world, leaves its seal on every aspect of Christian life. The very fact of the incarnation tells us that the created world is the means God chose to communicate his life to us. What is human and visible can bear the divine. Now, I'm going to keep this episode short, but I could go for hours on this. The incarnation tells us that God chose to enter into bodily reality, into the physical world itself. Now, what is purely holy could not enter into what was utterly depraved, right? Like, I mean, theologians will actually, if you're a serious theologian, you'll see some of the problems in what I just said, but we're not going to go down that rabbit hole per se, um, because you could, I guess you could make the point that Christ chose to enter into our sinful reality. But the incarnation itself is God teaching us that the physical reality matters. And of course, you go back to Genesis. It talks about, you know, God rested and then God said that this was not just good, but it was very good, that the physical world really matters and that the physical world reveals the divine to us. You go to Romans 2, right? And you look at St. Paul going, you know, God's invisible qualities have been made known to us through what has been made. I always remember reading that in Romans 2, that St. Paul was going, you, you know, He's basically saying the pagans don't have an excuse because, you know, they, they could see in the physical world that there was something revealing itself through the majesty of creation, but chose to ignore that and create little carved animals instead. So all of this is saying that the physical environment matters and God can be present through beautiful physical reality. As many of you know, I have a great love for the cathedrals and churches all around the world. I love so many of our beautiful, incredible cathedrals, and these buildings were meant as pieces of communication. You know, if, if the people that wanted to create cathedrals had simply wanted to create a meeting space, they could have created something much simpler. Obviously, like a, like a barn will do. Just create a huge barn and put some chairs in it. But they didn't. They created these stunning physical spaces that communicated something about the nature of reality, the nature of God, these buildings had a teaching function in themselves. Even the layout of cathedrals, you know, you've got the apps and you've got all the, the, the transections and 
because a cathedral is laid out like the cross. Have you ever noticed that? I was in St. Mary's Cathedral in Sydney. And even recently I was in Hobart and in uh, the cathedral there. And it's always the same layout. You've got, you know, if you keep it really simple, you've got the big center aisle and then you've got like, you know, the, 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 the high altar. And then you've got the transepts on either side, which are like the arms of Christ stretched out. So the building itself is Christological. So my friend, beautiful spaces matter. They teach us. And so, you know, the, the document here from Archbishop Miller talks about that we should have, um, they should express physically and visibly, this is Catholic schools, the external signs of Catholic culture through images, symbols, icons, other objects of traditional devotion, a chapel, classroom, crucifixes and statues, liturgical celebrations and other sacramental reminders of Catholic life, including, and I like this part here, including good art that is not explicitly religious in its subject matter. I like that. You know, we don't just have to have Caravaggio's on every corner. We can have just beautiful art. And the question is, well, Jonathan, how do you decide what's beautiful? It's really, really simple. I'll give you two ideas about it. One, of course, is the Aristotelian take. You know, Aristotle was, you know, wrote extensively about the nature of beauty. And his take was, you know, beauty has certain attributes. It has proportion. It has harmony. You know, one of the things apparently that... um why spiders are scary. <laughs> this is like some of you are listening going, dude, really? That is a big jump. Where are we going? Um, one of the things that freaks people out about spiders is their legs. It's just like not in proportion and harmony and it freaks people out. I mean, spiders are just hairy and nasty anyway. And I live in Australia, so we've got all of the worst in the world. But one of the things is they're not, you know, you would struggle to say a spider is beautiful. Now, I know some people might find them interesting and Maybe there's some people that work with spiders as a career and they think they're beautiful, but most of us would not think that because they freak us out because they've got all these legs going in different directions and too many legs and it's like they lack proportion and harmony. And I know some of you go, but Jonathan, God made them and how could they be ugly if God made them? True, but we live in a fallen creation, a post-lapsarian experience. Therefore, some of the beauty of creation has been marred. I'm just going to leave it at that word as, as it pertains to spiders. Let's move along. So... Proportion, beautiful art has proportion, harmony, and it reveals that what is true. It reveals what is good. You know, there's so much grotesque art and ugly art. And, you know, I think Roger Scruton writes so much, the conservative philosopher Roger Scruton writes so much about aesthetics and beauty. And, you know, he, he, he remember him writing a long piece saying that so much modern art is iconoclastic, right? It, it seeks to destroy icons of beauty and previous traditions. So it's designed to shock, you know, it's designed to be shocking. Would you agree with me that so much of, you know, the contentious modern art is designed to shock and create a response in the viewer? Whereas, you know, Mozart wasn't composing going, oh, I really want to shock everybody here and get them out of their comfort zones. It was like, no, let's just create something so unspeakably beautiful that everybody is utterly wrapped in silence. So this is a long little detour, but basically... We can have beautiful art. And the other definition of how do you know it comes from the famous comment by a U.S. Supreme Court judge when uh, providing a definition for what constituted pornography because uh, the one of the plaintiffs in a case was saying, well, you know, how do you even define pornography? And the judge famously said, you know it when you see it. And I think that's the same with beautiful art. And people go, well, people have different perceptions and tastes. And I'd say, no, I think it's something to do with the formation of moral sense. 
if people have a deeply formed moral sense, they're able to perceive what is moral in the artwork in the sense of true, good, and beautiful. So anyway, that's a, that's a little detour, but beautiful art in the school, prayer as part of the normal school day, the sacraments, rosary even, readings from the Bible. So all of this is saying that the physical, liturgical, prayerful environment of a Catholic school shapes things. I remember the first school I ever worked at was essentially a concrete jungle. The main area of the school opened into this huge concrete asphalt area, and it wasn't pretty. It was a lot of hard, hard surfaces. One of the effects was the hard surfaces drove up the noise level. So during breaks, it was just this raucous noise, of, you know, just too many people in an ugly space with voices and sound waves bouncing off the walls, elevating that sense of intensity and unsettledness. So there were often a lot of problems with conflict and bullying and yelling. And I remember the locker areas were dark and disgusting and crowded and, and students would go in there and they'd rub up against each other and yell and bump. And, you know, so whatever schools can reasonably do to create a peaceful, beautiful, calm environment is a really, really important thing. So all of this, my friend, comes back to this deep held belief. I have deeply held belief that we are able to create these remarkable, special, beautiful, profound places that, like the document says here, that when our students set foot, they know that they are in a, a beautiful place. And again, you know, shout out to the Morris Brothers. My son is uh, attending a Morris Brothers school, attending the same school that I went to. And, and you know, they it's it's been a very successful school. We, you know, we live in a wealthy city and this particular school, you know, does a lot for... Uh, I, I know that it makes available places uh, for students of in financial difficulty, but it is quite a relatively successful school in terms of finance. And so over the last, I'd say, 20 years, you know, they've spent a great deal on the physical environment and good on them. Like it actually looks really good. And when I drop my son off there, you sort of go down through these front gates and often you'll see senior staff or the principal there. There, and they are welcoming the boys every morning. I, I always say that if, if that is not happening at your school, that is one of the first things to fix. Absolutely first things to fix is that the principal, senior staff, or whether it's a staff roster, someone should be out the front every single day of the week welcoming students. It's like for me as a father, right? I'm always up earliest here in the home by a few hours. My kids are becoming teenagers. It's I'm up earlier and earlier and they're sleeping later and later. But usually I'm the first person they see and I'm like, you know, I'll give them a hug or say good morning. And so in that family spirit, a Catholic school can do something quite similar, you know, like have this. So when I drop my son off, I see him walking down as often there's some staff there. And that can be a big deal. Just have a kind, smiling face there at the start of the day to welcome them into that family environment is a really good thing. So I, uh, I encourage you to, to do that. And uh, I think it's something really they do really well here at uh, my son's Morris Brothers School. And uh, environments matter. Environments matter. And no matter whether you're living in the most beautiful part of the world or not, you can take small steps. You know, when I was teaching, I remember I had this year seven class and I remember just buying, I think it was out of my own money, flowers and putting them in the windowsill. Just taking the smaller steps. And often if I wanted the students to do quiet work, I'd have some quiet... Mozart or something on for study in the background, just these little touches. So all the way from being able to spend big budget on big things, all the way down to smaller steps that you can take. Let's create this beautiful physical environment. All right, everybody, 
Uh, please make sure you go and check out the links. My YouTube channel's there. My new website is up. You can book me to speak. Uh, there's a whole bunch of stuff there. Coaching for Catholic educational leaders is available as well. And uh, yeah, please make sure you subscribe. Share this with some people. My name's Jonathan Doyle. This has been the Catholic Teacher Daily Podcast. And I'll be speaking with you again tomorrow.